Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending August 4th. We're on Triple R every weekday morning from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, actor and director Courtney Stewart tells us about Miss Peony, her latest collaboration with Michelle Law, a comedy of beauty pageants, unrealistic expectations and the business of family. Digger senses spring is coming and he runs through his checklist for greeting the upcoming season in the garden. And Tilly Boleyn, head of curatorial at Science Gallery, invites us to contemplate the deepest mysteries of the universe, all being explored in the new exhibition, Dark Matters. Life is filled with challenges and anxieties. Should perplexing doors really be one of them? We share our door blunders. Simon Bugman Hinckley informs us on the potent combination of traits possessed by kleptoparasites, it's all in the name, and artistic director of Chunky Move, Anthony Hamilton, takes us through his latest work, 4-4. Comedian Jonathan Schuster made an existential mess in the kitchen, <laughs> but we start the pod knee-deep in brain teasers. Triple R. I was hanging out with my nephew last week and he is really into puzzling at the moment. Was Jigsaw it, puzzles. Was it at Oops Cafe? That yeah, you were Oopsie, out? Cafe. Oopsie Cafe. Yeah, God, if his hospitality was half as good as his puzzling skills, <laughs> I tell you what, be, there'd be some better reviews coming from me about Oopsie Cafe. No, so he's, he's two, so he's about 16 months or something like that. And he's very good. Like, I know I'm probably biased, but he obviously has a good memory and it's just all he wants to do. Puzzle, puzzle, puzzle. And it's really quite entertaining to watch. And it's, I mean, I don't know what the grade of the puzzle would be. My sister just got it from an op shop. It's probably half complete, but it's like a landscape of a grassland, like savannah scene, animals in, um, yeah, in Africa. And it's like, what he's putting together is impressive. Amazing. I'm thinking we should get him in some competitions. I yeah, think there could be some, some cash talent. in it. <laughs> but I'm like, yes, yeah, so hanging out with him, doing these puzzles. I've actually, as an adult, I've never completed a puzzle. It's just not, we were never a puzzling house growing up. We played kind of more drafts, checkers, mastermind. I don't know. It's Absolutely. just It's not a game. I didn't get into it during lockdown. So, yeah, I think it's something I really want to um, explore a little bit more yeah Absolutely. i want to try it what about you two how's your your puzzling i definitely have CB. always <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> a lot of experience a lot of enthusiasm keen to learn about puzzles of all kinds and it's definitely been a feature of my life okay. i think you know progressing from the hundred piece through to the 500 the thousands yeah i think a thousand is kind of where i comfortably sit generally speaking mm-hmm. it's kind of an achievable sort of weekend pursuit potentially or even a weekend interesting or drifting into the week and the idea that you mentioned of having tabletop space reserved for the puzzle in a state of sort of you know incompleteness yeah is something that I do enjoy sort of looking at it as you walk past sort of seeing a, a spot and just like perceiving a piece that fits in it and there's that satisfaction of just doing it incrementally that way so it's something that you have to you might have like a concentrated effort where you'll sit down you'll start it yes but then you have to step away and then pieces will kind of pop out to you and you'll piece it together i think in so. a more organic way organic, rather than yeah a mixture of the meth the method of sort of separating by color or shape and then 
yes, as you say, the more spontaneous additions as the week progresses. This is really insightful because that I was looking at a thousand-piece puzzle that's in my share house. Um, it's of a land, landscape. I can't remember where. I think National Park in America. It looks quite detailed. And I was, yeah, I'm like, how long is this going to take me? And I did a, a bit of a quick Google and they, I was advised a complex image puzzle, a thousand pieces, six to twenty hours. So there's there's a bit of range in there, depending on your concentration. Yeah. What about you, Daniel? Uh, I've never got so much into puzzles. I've, maybe carpet is the enemy of puzzles. Oh, they can get lost. Yeah. Oh, and also the that it's too bouncy. Oh, I see. Yes, mm. I see. Not that I want to blame a lack of linoleum. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, what would because what would happen if a jigsaw puzzle on the back of it was numbered? Ah, like if it went one to a thousand and left to right in different rows. So it would undermine the challenge. Well, yeah. now hundred percent it would, but it would be up to you to not <laughs> see it. Kind of like when you play solitaire on a computer and you can hit backwards. Yeah, it's it's so cheat. It's just cheating. And, and the quizzes in the paper. I'm always checking. Like, yeah, exactly. So no, I definitely like if there was numbers on the back, I'm done. I, I would definitely revert to that. And I had the same concerns that you raised for the puzzle living in a share house. I'm like, where do I start this? Mm. I don't have, a, like, a surface big enough in my room. Do I take on the real estate in the living room? How long are we looking at, you know, that I'm going to be taking over the coffee table? And are there pets around who might take an interest in the puzzle as exactly. well? Exactly. No pet, no visitors with any pets for at least the next week and a half. Yeah. I think it's my first puzzle. But I was also, then I just got intrigued and just started doing some Googling um, about like what is the most difficult puzzle I was curious oh, I'm about. Fascinated yeah, and there's not really a consensus because it's kind of it varies on how they um, uh, factor in the the difficult the what 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 am I trying to say there? Uh, the complexity. Uh, complexity. Thank you. It's based off whether it's like in monochrome colors and how many pieces versus I don't know more of like. Um, like smaller puzzles with more um, different variations in shapes and things like that and yes. texture. So one I came across was Yu uh, Asaka. Apparently it's only nine pieces uh, in the puzzle. It's it's plastic, but there's like a range of different like right angles and it comes with a little board like what looks like an ice tray, plastic ice tray, about the size of two um, hands put together and you have to kind of put it together like um, like a, a real-life game of Tetris. Indeed. So, and so apparently that came up. It's called the Ice Puzzle Number 9. And this is particularly diabolical, is it? Yeah, it's got a, a rating of 10, which I assume is the hardest. Right. Um, but I then discovered a YouTube channel called Mr Puzzle. Excellent. Yeah. And now I think that I don't know if I'll ever actually do a puzzle. I'll just watch Mr. Puzzle. The satisfaction of complete it. Puzzle. Yeah, it's a funny thing. It can seem so difficult. And then you see him do it and you go, I could do that. Mm. I mean, because I know people who do cryptic crosswords and they think about it all day. Mm. Like it's in the back of their pocket and it just never leaves them. But the jigsaw or physical puzzle, I feel like, is. I suppose that's why people meditate using it. Mm. Uh, although, arguably, you could take a photo of it, high definition, 
and leave it and then zoom in and re- do some puzzle work away from the puzzle. I love it, taking a bit more of a technologically assisted approach. Yeah, maybe being out in the fresh air away from the puzzle will free your exactly. mind up. Could you show it to friends for opinions? Do you think that would be I, cheating? I, I, I think words would be boring. <laughs> I, I You'd lose friends. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm excited for your nephew and obviously nephew is very gifted. and Clearly. Um, you know, I, don't know, I hope he has many years with choking hazards, yeah. you know, above his age grade. But I, there, a puzzle is – the difficulty of a puzzle, obviously, totally is dependent on the person doing the puzzle. I mm. mean, I, I saw a, a genius, like a certified genius out in the wild. Like, oh, you oh, saw oh, my nephew. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, as honorary doctorates from around the world. And uh, – but was in a grocery and let's say it was like two two apples for $4 <laughs> but one for three. And they were like, well, what, why can't I just get one for two? It doesn't make sense. And yet he can do a 30,000 jigsaw piece puzzle. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Miss Peony is a comedy of beauty pageants, unrealistic expectations in the business of family, written by Michelle Law and directed for the stage by our next guest. Courtney Stewart is artistic director at Le Bois Theatre, former directing associate at the Sydney Theatre Company and is in Melbourne to helm what's sure to be a smash hit season and to tell us about Miss Peony. The acclaimed theatre maker joins us now. Courtney, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Uh, now, am I crazy? This show was supposed to be here a while ago. <laughs> you are not crazy. That is right. Yes. After many, many false starts, we're finally, we're finally here in Melbourne. So it's a thrill to be here. Yes, we were shut down multiple times due to COVID. Mm, so where is this being staged and how much fun is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's previously been staged at Belvoir Street Theatre. So we've just completed a season there, um, which was amazing. And it was so gratifying to finally have audiences in to share in the joy of this story. Um, it's been a real labour of love, but I I think that the team behind it have made it worthwhile, you know, really kind of pushing through all the challenges that we've had and all the false starts. Um, and the show is just so joyful and it's just, you know, it's just a fun time with the, the performers and the audiences in the space together. And how closely have you worked with Michelle Law in the past? And and over the duration of all this? I mean, my love of new work came from working on Single Asian Female with Michelle. So I started out as an actor. So I was an actor for many, many years. And that was kind of the first role that I had had taken uh, on main stage that really you know, was three-dimensional and kind of really meant something to me. Um, And, you know, I I became really close friends with Michelle during that process and then ended up directing her her, uh, next show called Top Coat at Sydney Theatre Company. Um, But Miss Penny was supposed to happen first. That was supposed to be... next project that we worked on together but it ended up being you know further down the line because of COVID. And there's multilingual elements to uh, this show like how important is that to like exploring the different themes that the show looks at of like connection and family and I think it's critical. I think that we rely on language to communicate so much and I think we we really take for granted the, the fact that shared language kind of supports the way that we communicate with one another. When you don't have that, you have to find other ways to connect, get your message across, reach understanding. And I think that that device, the way that it's employed in the piece, really kind of stretches, you know, that theme in different ways. And um, and aside from that, I think we, we really found an audience 
audience with single Asian female that weren't necessarily from the Chinese Australian diaspora. Like there were a huge portion of the audience did did come from that lived experience. But it was really for anyone who experienced who had any kind of relationship with a mother or a sister, and they really related to that. Um, and then we we found that we did have huge portions of the audience that did have English as a second language. And so Michelle really wanted to make sure that her next piece mm. um, was able to be understood by all of the people that she found um, in the audience for Single Asian Female. Absolutely. And as with all your work uh, together, it's rich, as you say, with with really uh, profound themes and also deeply engaging and entertaining and covers a broad spectrum of different forms of, of communication and entertainment. I suppose we're very interested in how you're balancing the, the sort of the dramatic and the comedic as a director? Yeah, I mean, I love comedy. I think it's actually the best way to access empathy. Um, I think when people feel like they're being taught a lesson or being told, oh, you have to go home and think about that and, you know, you have to interrogate who you are as a person. I mean, they're all very worthwhile things, but you've got to come to that experience <laughs> ready to do that. Um, and I think that laughter is a great way to... Um, let people access their vulnerability and also share and, and also show because because laughter also comes you laugh at things that are familiar to you and that speak to your flaws as a human being um, that you're seeing reflected back at you that you know that kind of sits at a distance that helps you maintain your dignity um, <laughs> but also you know kind of speaks to kind of real things that you go through and, and those challenges that you go through so I think that comedy is really important for me in everything that I do um, whether the piece is, is supposed to be dramatic or not, I will always find a moment to kind of have that kind of pressure cooker release for the audience. Um, and I think that's Miss Peony. Like, the politics are there. It's it's a light touch, though. Like, I feel like the piece just kind of kisses different kind of political themes and interrogations of identity. Um, but really, it's, it is about family. It's about... It is. A, it's. It's about trying to connect with who you are on your own terms, and that being okay, and that you you are enough in this moment. And it's great that you're just showing up. Can beauty make the? Can beauty queens make a comeback? Yeah, I think they should. I mean, look at the Barbie movie. <laughs> I think that there's. Um, I think that there's a reclaiming of of those kind of tropes and and myths around you know what it means to be feminine what it means to be a woman and have a female body um and i think that there's a huge kind of feminist you know um lens that people are putting over these projects and that i think i think that we do that in miss peony as well mm. what are the are there any intergenerational issues that pique your interest as a director yeah, I think you know. In the room, we have an incredible cast um, that that do spend do span um, different generations, and that's really really interesting. I think you know, speaking specifically from the Chinese Australian diaspora, there's particular politics and and cultural um, norms that we kind of that we observe in the way that we relate to each other, communicate with each other, and work together. And that's really interesting putting that in a Western context in a rehearsal room when you're making theatre. Um, that I think translates, you know, to stage in a really in a really great way. Like we all have, you know, different people from different ages in our lives and I think it's important to make sure that we don't discount people because they haven't had enough experience or they've had too much experience or, you know, certain people may think that, you know, people over a certain age don't, aren't as connected in and I, I think that we challenge that and I think that everyone has something meaningful to contribute to the conversation because 
you know, those differences in opinions uh, and allowing them to kind of sit in spaces is how you kind of reach understanding. Mm. Absolutely. And with Miss Peony, with the staging, I suppose all of these different contexts offer a lot of opportunities and challenges to present certain situations. Can you tell us a little bit yeah. about this part of the process? <laughs> Michelle Law writes amazing theatre that has a million transitions in a million different <laughs> locations and it's so challenging but I think it really it's it's an amazing opportunity to really kind of stretch your craft as a storyteller and a director um, and so there's no real opportunity to kind of sit in realism which is not which is not my preferred style as a maker I love watching I love watching realism but as a maker like I really love sitting in the more conceptual heightened you know leaning into the theatre making of it um, and not shying away from that and I think that you know we do that in Miss Peony like I, I've really kind of you know use the stage we flip it you know there's a ghost and there's a, like really obey proper rules which is really fun I think the audience kind of you know loves the messy nature of it where are you at with acting now you know what I I, I think I've put it to bed, which oh. is kind of I feel I don't feel particularly sad about I mean I think I, I, I like I I really found directing when I really started to hit my strides as an actor and I think the reason I hit my strides as an actor is because all of a sudden I wasn't holding on to it so tightly. I really I found directing doing this, you know, week long initiative and I was like, Wow, I love this. I love being a part of the conversations earlier on, sitting bigger picture. Um, I don't mind if I ever act again and then I and then I ended up joining the single Asian female cast and did a couple of other productions and some T V shows. Um, but I really wasn't chasing that, I was really kind of trying trying to plug into this directing thing. Um, and, and, and really, it's just about telling stories, you know, directing, acting, dancing. It's all about telling mm. stories. Yeah. What are you most nervous now as opposed to when you might be acting? Oh, I mean, previews, opening night, I'm kind of sitting there going, is everyone going to get it? <laughs> yeah. And so that's tonight. Yes, definitely. We have our first preview tonight, so I'll be biting my nails a little bit. But it's great because we've had a we've had a season already. But you know that season faced its own challenges. Like there was some cast illness, so we've had some you know cast changeovers, which you know is amazing and just you know speaks to the where we're at in the industry right now is that we have amazing performers ready to step in and take on these roles. Mm. And in terms of so the experience of the of Miss Peony as well, obviously visually such a spectacle, and I suppose musically as well, mm. there's a strong a musical dimension. Can you t- tell us a little bit about some of the choices behind? Yeah, know. I think um, the music in Michelle's plays always plays. A, a, I think she writes with these tracks in her mind, and she writes with these with, with those tracks and the, the the rhythm that they kind of put into the piece. Um, so yeah, the track is super poppy. I mean, there's a lot of seventies, eighties, a lot of disco. Um, you know, songs that I personally love that other people may find a little daggy, but I think that's the, the charm of but it. But an exhilarating <laughs> experience for audiences. Yeah, I think so. What about your poker face now, now that you're in charge and everyone turns to you uh. for calm and comfort? <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> I need to work on it, I think. Um, you know, I think being in this role at La Boite really has opened up a whole other way that I need to operate and um, I'm still practising trying to... You know, not let things 
affect me because I, you know, I've come from being an actor that my, my job was to emotionally connect and be vulnerable and, and show exactly how I was feeling. Um, and now I kind of have to do the opposite in order to kind of keep everyone, you know, calm and not, not make them feel stressed. Um, so it's, it's a tricky balance, but, um, but, I, but, I, you know, I think my brand of leadership is, is about being vulnerable anyway, because it kind of, you know, I, know, I think it's a good thing. Mm. Uh, can I ask about the casting credits, the role of community engagement? coordinator what can you speak to that role in this production yeah I think that those roles are something that we have seen in recent years um, and I and I think it's due to the fact that the hunger for stories from historically marginalized communities is so great from from theater companies from audiences from performers um, wanting to take on those roles and I really feel like the community engagement aspect of the piece is crucial for the piece to reach the people that it was intended for. That's not to say that it's only for those people. Like it, All theatre should be for everyone. I think everyone should be able to come to something and find something relatable in it or enjoy it. Um, but I think that historically marginalised communities have found it tricky interacting in particular spaces or haven't felt like spaces are for them. Um, and so I think that the community engagement... Um, Officers, people, that kind of strategy under under the shows and the programming is really critical to making sure that the theatre and the work extends beyond just the audiences that would normally find that show. All right. We've been talk- speaking with Courtney Stewart about Miss Peony. Where do you go after this? We go to Canberra. Yeah, so super exciting. And then we'll go to uh, Wollongong and Geelong after that. All right, Canberra, super exciting. Uh, Miss Peony's a comedy of beauty pageants, unrealistic expectations and the business of family. It's written by Michelle Law and it's directed by Courtney Stewart. Head to artcentremelbourne.com.au for more information. Preview tonight, opening on Thursday, big party. Yeah, I mean, we need to celebrate. (laughs) (laughs) Good on you. Uh, Courtney Stewart, thanks heaps. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop singing about dirt? Digger has seen his shadow in the light of the supermoon, which, according to superstition, <laughs> means spring is around the corner. Morning, Digger. Oh, morning, all. <laughs> How magic was it? <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. It's isn't bloody it? magic. Yeah, I feel like a bit like Batman. <laughs> it, does uh, astronomy have anything to do with gardening in your world? Ah, yeah, but a lot of people moon plant. Okay. So um, different calendar comes out each year and it's literally, you know, planting and deciding to plant different things by each phase of the moon. Mm. So because we know that the moon has effect on the flow of water, our tides, um, it's water all over the planet. So uh, one little instance is like if you're planting a particular seedling when the moon is drawing water down, that's beneficial to root crops Mm. because their roots will follow the water deeper down, whereas if it's drawing the water up, not ideal for them because they're just going to sit there and not grow. But, you know... Yeah, you know, at night time I like to just flop on the couch like other people, not put on a head torch and go out. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've visited houses where they've got moon calendars. Yeah, for this purpose. Yeah, that's exactly. It. A lot of people swear by it. You know? mm. Is that what makes something biodynamic? I know that's no, that's no. totally oh, okay. different. Okay, all right, never mind. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of questions, but I, we do want to know what it means for you that spring is coming. Yeah, well, there's so many signs. It's actually happening fast. Two weeks ago, we we're in here talking about oh, the winter waddles have burst. Fantastic spring is you know that's a it's a turning point so we've rounded the corner now it's home straight 
in the last two weeks, the um, Magnolia Solangianas have popped. We've got almonds have popped. We've even got some early peaches have popped. It's like, hang on a minute, we're, we're not ready yet, but mm. it's coming fast. So I was writing a list um, of all the stuff I have to do at home. So I thought uh, maybe there's other people who might oh, have to do stuff too. great intelligence. Because I'm... I'm now I'm a bit panicking. Mm. So got to finish all the winter pruning. Um, and Don't so panic, much, Digger. There's so much <laughs> to do. There's so much to do. Because especially with the winter pruning, you've got a very specific result that you're trying to get out of it and it needs to be done in winter. So when it wakes up in dormancy, it's like, okay, I know how much has come off. I've got to replace all of that. And we're kind of redirecting energy. So reshaping the tree, if you miss it, you've put yourself back 12 months. It's not like, ah, I'll just come back again in September. You've literally got to wait 12 months. So I've got to do all of that. So planting all your all your deciduous stuff too, so whether that's your fruit trees or your berries or um, your strawberries, currants, whatever it might be, they've got to go in before they reshoot as well. So that could be – you could be too late for that. I was in the nursery yesterday um, and some of the peaches have already shot. It's like, okay, that's – can't plant that this year. It's going to have to stay in the pot for another 12 months. Yeah, I you know? see. Okay. Wow. Oops. What a, con- <laughs> yeah, what a consequential window that is. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So the other one is um, my lawns are heaving. Those who live in the clay soils in the northern suburbs of Melbourne would notice that everything's sitting up about an inch. So they're just so full of water and heaved during because they're – Clay is so reactional, just up and down, up and down, up and down. So a good time to actually aerate it. So I'm going to get out there with the garden fork on the weekend and start stabbing the lawn, mm. take out a bit of frustration. <laughs> yeah. um, and then a bit of top dressing, so a little bit of sand in there, just so that when it com- when it shrinks down again in the summertime, it's not going to be so dense and kill off your lawns, for those of us who love a good lawn. Mm. Um, Do you stab and shift or just stab? No, stab, very systematic. Start at one corner, stab, 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 stretch your back, stab, 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 stretch your back, and just go until it's finished. You know? Cool. And are we talk like foot increments? Yeah, 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 roughly a foot increment. And, and deep too, the deeper you go, the better. So a full garden fork depth. So if you have to use your foot and, you know, whatever wow. it might be, have a party. That is catharsis. <laughs> Do you have to have a fork? Any kind of tips for a DIY stabbing? Um, it's it's got to be fine. Okay. So, you know, you don't want anything because you, you won't be able to, you know, drive anything really thick mm. into there. So, you know, garden fork. Look, if even if you just had a spade and just did slices, sure. little slices in there, you yeah. know, like you would, you know, when you're going to cook a fish, you put little slices in, a bit like that. Mm. Yeah. So we're trying to get air in, in deeper into the soil. Okay. Yeah. Uh, before we kick on with more tips, uh, Digger, we have a tomato seedlings sitting dormant in the garden. Will they take off once the soil warms up or uh, should we take them out? No, no, this is it. So I was going to recommend, you know, looking at seed catalogues, get stick get everything set for the spring planting. And, yeah, I know a few people that have got seedlings that have been sitting there. The weather that we're having, it's so warm, I reckon leave them there. Mm. Just leave them there. If they've got this far through winter, I did, look, I'm going to go out and leave them and say I don't think we're going to have a deep frost in the suburbs again this year. Maybe the outer suburbs up the Nongs maybe. But in the suburbs, just let it go. Mm. Watch what happens. This is great time to collect data. You know, the powers that be haven't declared Nino yet, but I'm calling it in the suburbs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. When you go out on a limb, do you realise you've said a pun or it's just you? No, uh, you I just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no just the same old shit. <laughs> yeah. 50 years in a row. We've got um, it's brilliant, genius as always. Digger, we have a pomegranate that only produces a couple of fruit per year. Most of them fall off before maturing. It doesn't get a lot of sun. Should I move it or does it need something else, do you think? Um... It's probably a combination. So if it doesn't get a lot of sun, that's not good for pomegranates. They love a lot of sun. Mm. Um, and so 
I would move it. And in the process of moving it, now you're going to have to do it this weekend. Now, look, they're tough. Okay. So I would prune at least 50% of this pomegranate off the tree into a vase shape. Think of the shape of a vase or a glass. Um, and then in the replanting, put lots and lots of chicken poo in there. Okay. So it's going to need a bit, a little bit of phosphorus. That's why it's not probably fruiting. And somewhere a little bit more sunny. A little bit more sun. Can yep. you ever use heaving soil to your advantage? Um, yeah, it pulls up pavers. Oh, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, your paving comes up and it makes it so much easier. So it actually cracks the mortar in paving. So, you know, if you, rather than having to move paver by paver because they're all stuck together, it heaves and it just cracks everything and it just they just pop yeah. up. Yeah, so know, double-edged sword. Double-edged sword, yeah. <laughs> uh, is now okay to transplant a Karakara orange? I grafted a small tree that was mailed from Queensland two yeah. years ago. It hasn't really grown at all on Phillip Island. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Climate problem. Look, you could do it now. Autumn would have been better because it's going to want to start fruiting. Now, you could do it now, but you're probably going to lose all of your fruit for next year by doing it. But it can be done now. Again, it's going to need a microclimate that's warm. So Phillip Island can get some fairly cold winds howling through there. So if it's a northeast facing with something backing it away from the southwest cold winds, that's where I'd put it. All right. Uh, what when you spoke about moon planting before? Is that uh, is that something that you could do if you wanted, or is it a is it a sphere of gardening you don't believe? Or, or uh, what's your relationship with it? Um, I've always been curious. So there's a lot of things in gardening that I've never tried. I know about. I've researched, but I've never gone through with it i understand the rationale behind it it's literally just i'm a lazy ass and i don't <laughs> I, I, I can't I don't be asked <laughs> going out at night time because it has to be specific and that's why you get a new calendar every year following the moon cycles mm. um and there's no kind of wavering from it so maybe it's because i'm stubborn maybe it's because i'm lazy but yeah i just haven't given it a yeah. go and this time of year do you get busier you mentioned the timeline does that do you spend more time in the garden this time of year no I, I, actually it's kind of starts to slow off a little bit spring is a little bit slower it's all the prep autumn and winter is where the bulk of the work is mm-hmm. what you don't get done then is going to is going to show up in spring and summer. Mm. So then you might be on the back foot in spring and summer making corrections of stuff that you didn't do <gasps> that you could have prevented in autumn and winter. Well, so Phil, Sam, what are some more things we should be doing? So this is, you know, if you don't get the right pruning done in winter, your your trees and shrubs are going to overcrowd themselves because mm-hmm. that's what they want to do. They're trying to cover the fruit, mm-hmm. yeah? So they want to crowd in on each other. Where when We want them open so that we can do all of our maintenance and harvesting and those kind of things. So if you don't do the correct pruning in winter, they're going to be very dense in summer. So that doubles your summer pruning. Mm-hmm. What are they? Do, what are, are they trying to protect it from predators, or what's the instinct there? Yeah. So we keep it open. So that obviously, when you see young fruit of anything, they're green. So they will always put them in a cluster underneath a cluster of leaves, and in green because. They're gestating. I think people forget that fruit is essentially as as we gestated inside a inside a womb. Mm. The seeds are gestating inside of an apple, and so that slowly that gets thicker and thicker. And that's just a protective coating. Now, when the plant decides that gestation is finished, they will change the colour of that fruit to get birds and other mammals to now see that colour through the green leaf to come and get it and distribute the seed for the plant. It's all a process. The plants are manipulating all of us yeah. and always have. And so when we, it, you know, when we don't prune, that's what they'll naturally do. And if a mammal doesn't find it, it'll just drop it to the ground anyway and then a mammal might find it and take it off. If not, it might so 
seed down there and be progeny to the next one. Mm. When we prune, we expose it all and change all of the rules. So, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a fine line of getting it right, knowing it's not going to be too much for the tree or being not enough. Yeah. And forgive me, when you, this might be inherent to all of the, the points you've been making already with regards to your task list, but when you mention sort of conversations around El Nino, how does this influence your thinking about what, what else you need to prepare for in the coming months? Well, this is where I'm looking at um, different seed catalogues now, different seed companies. So I have you know, a little bit of a, a seed bank, but, and I've kind of thought about what varieties are Nino and Nino. Okay. So now we're, I'm actually on the flip. Now I'm looking for varieties that when you see loves heat or loves hot, they're the sorts of varieties that you should be going for. Absolutely. Talking to gardening friends of like, you've got any tomatoes that love the heat, like start seed swapping with hot stuff now because mm. I reckon it's coming. Okay. Uh, Friday, Simon's last day. It's your last with uh, Down and Dirty with Winkles. I know. It's <laughs> so sad. It's been such a wonderful time, oh, it's been Simon. the greatest privilege and greatest honour to be on air with you. So thanks so much, Digger. No problem. It's just like your energy, your insight, the incredible conversations, the points we have off here, obviously people don't get to hear, but it's just so much fun and it's just been wonderful. Oh, so. for, for me too. Thank you so much, Digger. Pleasure. Thanks, Digger. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. The fundamental essence of life and the universe is the grand focus of the new exhibition Dark Matters at Science Gallery Melbourne. The purpose-built museum space on the corner of Swanson and Grattan Streets has collaborated with Arts at CERN and the ARC Centre of Excellence for Dark Matter Particle Physics to deep dive into the unseen, unknown and unspoken to ask, will we ever fully understand the forces at play in our own lives, both on an individual level and on a planetary and universal scale? Joining us to flesh out these imponderables and tease us with the art addressing such dark matters, we're joined by Head Curator at Science Gallery Melbourne, Tilly Berlin. Welcome back to Breakfasters. Good morning, Gabe. <laughs> it's morning. an absolute delight to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you back. Now, you've managed to, what, coalesce art and science around the unknown here. What, what have you done? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, dark matter uh, as a topic itself is such a beautiful metaphor for what scientists and artists all do, mm. which is that pushing through the unknown, looking for the undiscovered yet, trying to make sense of what the experience of to be human and how to interact with the world around us. And there are so many things that are a commonality across all of the sciences and all of the arts. And this exhibition brings and winds those threads together and also bounces actual scientists and artists' ideas off each other as well. Can you speak to the collaboration that you've engaged in? Oh, collaboration <laughs> is such a magical thing and sometimes it creates these beautiful things and sometimes it's total magic. Mayhem. These two collaborators, uh, Arts at CERN and the ARC Centre for Dark Matter at the University of Melbourne, um, are filled with such glorious nerds who <laughs> connect with us in a, in a perfect way because they are really up for having these interesting conversations. So CERN is pretty much the largest piece of scientific equipment on the globe. It's underneath the ground on the Frank-Swiss border. It's 20... It's a circle that runs for, like, 26 kilometres around and that's where they keep the Large Hadron Collider, where they smash particles together wow. to look at just the tiny questions of how did life begin, <laughs> what is the universe made of, um, what are we heading towards? Um, and they run this uh, artist-in-residence program and some of the artists that they connect with are the same sort of artists we've been interested in and have connected with here at Science gallery at the University of Melbourne too and so a conversation started and 
this collaboration has been bubbling away for about a year and a half of how we connect those scientists, those particle physicists working at CERN with not only uh, physicists working here in Australia and beyond, but also artistic brains from locally and internationally. So brilliant. We were talking before in media about open plan offices, and it seems like the <laughs> ultimate open plan where you've got artists <laughs> and scientists just exchanging notes over the big questions. Absolutely, because when you get humans that are interested and engaged and curious in a topic but are coming at it from totally different perspectives, what you do is open up the possibilities just enormously. I mean, we're not asking artists to come in and build the next part of the next Large Hadron Collider, but what they are bringing is this incredible expertise of coming at a problem, coming at a question from a different way and opening up uh, maybe the young people who are coming into our gallery space, any visitor who's coming in, but also the physicists involved in opening up their imaginations and their unconscious into possibilities they might not have previously thought of if they're only bouncing ideas off other particle Absolutely. physicists. Absolutely. And in terms of the specifics of some of those artistic sort of reflections, prompts and investigations, I suppose it crosses a number of disciplines too as well. There's uh, poetry from Alicia Sometimes, of yeah. course, uh, beloved triple R broadcaster, and there's also sound installations. Can you take us through some of the, the program? Yeah, absolutely. So Alicia Sometimes' work with Andrew Watson is an absolute joy to behold. <laughs> it's called In This Room Everywhere. And they actually take that quote from the head of CERN who had been talking about the concept of dark matter being in this room everywhere. It surrounds us constantly and yet we cannot observe, touch, see, monitor it. And so Alicia has, Alicia and Andrew have this wonderful way of really pulling in a triptych of a, a visual uh, a visual piece of video artwork with poetry. They've also woven in interviews with actual physicists, so Professor Alan Duffy, who is just speaks in such a lyrical way, it's almost poetry, even when he's talking about his research, um, and other physicists into their work. So you're sitting in a dark room, and I've got to tell you, when we were doing the open call for this show and got over 360 applications, so many of them started with the line... The visitor enters a darkened room. <laughs> and that is hard in Science Gallery because we've got a lot of windows. But um, this is one of the works that truly has delivered and is in the show as a dark room. So you go into Alicia and Andrew's work and you have got the poet the poetry connecting you uh, to the universe. They also are doing this amazing audio sampling from around the gallery and intertwining it within the work because they're really leaning into that concept of sampling from everywhere at once. So you are sitting in there surrounded by the science, the theories, the possibilities of discovering dark matter that's woven together with Alicia's amazing poetry. Oh, it's beautiful to hear you describe it as well. Mm. <laughs> Very excited to experience this. Another work is by John Butt, who's a local curator, artist, um, delight. Uh, and John's work is humiography. What he's done is create, in lockdown, he created a DIY muon detector. So just from components on the internet, he has constructed this beautiful piece of equipment where he's basically composing a symphony with the cosmos because this tiny muon detector is, uh, it pings, 
every time a muon, which is a subatomic particle, which is constantly, these things are constantly safely raining down on us from cosmic rays, passing through us and through the earth because we are filled with so many empty spaces from a subatomic particle's point of view, just passing straight through us. But when it hits John's work, it creates uh, a pattern where he he connects that to a musical um, score and live in gallery he is creating this, uh, this symphony with, uh, with, with the cosmos and beyond. And in um, Science Christmas, otherwise known as National Science Week, which is coming up very soon, John will be in the gallery and doing a sound piece live for people to come and watch as well. What a remarkable and unique way to listen to the, to the universe. As a science communicator, what's, your, what's been your relationship with dark matter? Do you feel it's impenetrable? Is, are you enticed by it? Can you speak to your relationship with it? Yeah, sure. Um, it's, it's such an incredible concept to me that of everything that we know of and observe, that is 5% of what physicists explain to us is the actual universe. Mm. So the concept that this 95% of other unseen, unknown aspect of the universe blows my mind, but also it really excites me Mm. that as we are on this, we're in this amazing place where as humans, we are creating knowledge and technology at such an incredible rate. And yet, at such a fundamental level, there is so much still to understand and connect with in our universe or other universes or multiverses. Or <laughs> So for me, it, it that massive question mark of discovery and pushing forward is a really exciting prospect. Mm. Do you ever get fed up with the unknown, though? Do you ever just go, oh, just tell me. I just want to know. <laughs> Please. Spit it out, universe. Um, one, of the big, one of the questions in the, uh, one work is called Night Exchanges, and that's where Random Quark, this um, artistic duo, have actually just made an offering, a provocation for our visitors to um, step up to their work and say and whisper into this 3D printed ear of, what the answer to the question, what keeps you up at night? Mm. And we're setting up another one in Science Gallery Bengaluru um, where those exchanges will be going. And we got some of the particle <laughs> physicists to say what keeps them up at night. Mm. And some of them are so beautiful and heartbreaking because some of them were like you know what keeps me up at night I guess my you know the research that I'm doing about the the hunt for dark matter and I think that my theory is on the right track but you know the universe doesn't need to be kind to me so it's not as though I, I will necessarily be alive I'm part of the journey on the discovery of what it is but I'm you know probably may well be long dead by the time we figure it out and just watching this beautiful part of a scientist who is absolutely involved in the journey and discovery has devoted their whole lives to this um, and is making, you know, steps towards. Mm. But the knowledge that this body of scientific knowledge, human knowledge, discovery continues on and is much longer than one human being's con- contribution mm. to yeah, it, I guess. so truly profound. And, yeah. and as you say, a bit heartbreaking too mm. as well. Why do you think it's important that the Hadron Collider or CERN has an artist in residence? Because I think that, that that point about different perspectives, about when we silo certain disciplines or any disciplines, it makes it less uh, expansive, less curious, less possible of coming at a, a, coming at issues and problems from 
different sides. And at the moment, we have so many broad-ranging issues to address uh, that that element of uh, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, anti-disciplinary, not being against disciplines, but being against put, pulling them and popping them in different components, I think is really important for lots of organisations to address, especially one that has so many incredibly intelligent, focused human beings like CERN. The program itself is its a collaboration. You can only build a piece of scientific equipment that big when you have huge investment from multiple countries. And so they are very good at bringing humans together and collaborating. Um, so, yeah, I think that that, that, that that element of bringing in new ways of looking at things and also showing time and time again the incredible curiosity and creativity that is across the sciences. When lots of Western education systems raise us to think that science and maths and engineering is a thing that smart people do and pushing people into certain boxes of whether or not they belong or don't belong in those areas... And part of what we want to do is absolutely smash that rubbish stereotype and uh, and really connect people to that create creativity and curiosity. And that's also what those artist in residence programs do. Speaking to so many scientists and the the a story that commonly comes up just somewhere in a conversation is that oh yeah. I used to love doing X, Y, Z, but then I got to a point where I was told I had to choose between creative stuff or science stuff and I chose science. Mm. So at any point in time in your career, also knowing that you can step into things that are incredibly enjoyable and connect you to other ways of thinking and other ways of spending your time. So and that's not... That's not a negative, that's a huge positive. (laughs) Well said. Well, the exhibition Dark Matters, the collaboration with Arts at CERN and the ARC Centre for Excellence for Dark Matter and Particle Physics is on its Science Gallery in Melbourne. Kicks off this Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Wander around the Science Gallery Melbourne and we've been speaking. Uh, Do it before the Hadron Collider smashes (laughs) together and we all get sucked into a black hole. No, that's when it can happen. Uh, Tilly Boleyn, thanks so much. Triple R. want to start by asking you both a question. To be honest, I can't believe it's taken me this long to ask you both on Simon's final show. How rude. Um, the question is, have either of you ever walked into a glass door? Yes, yeah. definitely. Okay. Multiple times and sometimes the same door, knowing that it was there. In fact, I'm the reason why there is a particular door in Sydney that has... Orange stickers on it. Okay. Yes. I love this. So you've done it several times. Yes. And I, I can't even account for it other than I'm in such a tremendous uh, – well, I'm, I'm really excited to get into the kitchen of this house. Okay. And this is the glass door that separates the living room from the kind of kitchen area space. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the food and the conversation and then all of a sudden my forehead yeah. meets this iris- yeah, immovable object. So it's a key uh, walkway entrance for you – in, up in Sydney. Okay, yes. wow. And so now they've got stickers on there. They're some, they've done something. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad to hear that. What about you, Daniel? I don't recall. I've walked in solid walls that <laughs> should have been obvious to me, but not glass ones. What sort of house is this? It's absurd. Well, that, that is really bad design. <laughs> Inside a legitimate living space, there is a glass door for what comic effect? I, <laughs> which I was very happy to provide, it seems. I think I, I can't quite account for the design rationale of it, other than to say it provides for 
the sh- I don't know, the impression of a, a greater expanse. Exactly. Uh, but okay. with the ability to kind of partition spaces if you want a little bit of privacy, for example. Okay. I think. At great cost. I, yes. Definitely. <laughs> Is this a family home? Yes. Can I say? Oh, okay. yeah, that's right. Oh, wow. And so how many times do you think you've walked into it? I, well, twice. Okay. The first time was tremendously shocking. Oh. The second oh. time was just embarrassing. <laughs> yes. Okay. This is great. Yeah. I, I too have also uh, – I've I ran into a glass door. Oh, that's yeah. – much worse. I'm so sorry. Oh, I don't know if it's. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe. I guess going at the speed, the the <laughs> impact. I, it was on a holiday. Those kind of sliding doors that are kind of common in uh, those units, uh, like yeah. it was beachside up north, and yeah, just so excited. The glass was so clean, and yeah, running out into the courtyard. I even did the kind of jump to go over the bottom of the door. Oh no! Just smashed my ahead look it was fine it, the same kind of similar reasons just so excited yeah. to be on holiday wanted to get amongst it great energy um yeah and ran into it but I, look i don't really know where i'm going with this i suppose i had an incident <laughs> with a door yesterday not, it, not not your famous door no and i understand that this talk break's going to come off as quite rich considering i am for no good reason constructing like a, a stage door for no, yeah, my friend. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated no by this story. Do and this. So the stage door has, we've discovered, become something of the beginnings of a new room. Potentially, yes, because the reinforcements required for the heavy door are just getting bigger and bigger. So I am I am concerned that we are <laughs> going to build like a granny flat just to secure the weight of this door Could that I bought. Architecturally on designated as a folly? Yeah, I, I'm, that's what I'm going for yeah. now. I'm leaning in because, yeah, there was like, oh, we'll, we'll build the side. Maybe we'll have the front. Maybe we'll put some pot plants in. Maybe we'll get a doormat. Then, yeah, maybe I'm going to be a, living in it. I'm living in a folly. <laughs> Glass door at the back. Yeah. <laughs> but, no, there's this – I had a massive – like I had a really embarrassing moment with the door yesterday. I went to a cafe and it's quite a popular cafe, big glass window and a big glass door. And it wasn't clear whether it was a sliding door or um, exactly a, an opening door. So kind of one single handle, I pushed it. Um, then I was like, oh, it's a sliding door. It's the width. I think that's how I would kind of assess a door to be sliding. It had a big handle on one side and maybe a couple of metres wide. So I was like, oh, silly me, pushed it, no luck. I'll pull it. It's a sliding door. No, I'm pulling it to the right <laughs> and not going. I was like, oh, okay, I'll pull it towards me. And I am going back and forth. And then I started to get really embarrassed. I was like, oh, no. And then I kind of stood back and people were – I think people would have helped, but they were like – I. It hadn't gone on long enough to, to step in yet. They were like, we'll save face for it, I think, was kind of the, the, the general feeling. And I'm put. imagining that such is the ambiguity of this particular handle and its purpose. Everyone was sharing your, your feelings of confusion, I'm sure. You would think. And it went on for what I felt like an eternity to the point where I almost was like, I think I'm going to leave. Like, I actually don't think I can endure this anymore because I'd gotten myself in that point of fluster where you can't really come back from it. And then you're like, am I stupid for trying to push again? Not at all. But none of it was working. It, it turned out it wasn't a sliding door. I got in, but I was just like, it's 2023. 
Like, come on, we're going in and out of doors <laughs> all the time. But they, it's just well, like... How, sorry, how did you get in? Oh, oh, I pushed it. Okay. So it was. So just you a, were pulling and it was a push? No, so I actually did try push it. It was just a really tricky door. And yeah. I'm imagining the weights of the expanse of this glass would have made it seem like it wasn't moving. And coupled with the suction, perhaps. Pre- precisely. It was deceiving in its appearance that I think it looks like a classic sliding door. I mm. felt like a fool for pushing it mm. at the start. I was like, no, sliding. And I'm like, we're going in and out of these things constantly. Yes. And it's like how – I'm surely not the only person. I hope I'm not the only person no, this is I'm sure to. this happens to every single person. And it's just like, come on, let's get on these these two percenters, you know, getting in and out of a cafe. <laughs> Life is stressful enough. I want a sign there. Yes. And then I was like – and then I was, I was transported to like the humiliation of, of running into the glass door. Indeed, uh, they are the source of tremendous amount of anxiety. Well, birds never it. seem embarrassed. Yeah. They, they, I mean, they, I think they, they look shaken, they look upset, mm. uh, and, but then they, you know, they don't slink away. I feel <laughs> as though they just move on. Yeah. Um, which is really psychologically inspirational. It is. But, yeah, it looks like you had your face up against the glass looking in as though it was closed and it was a cafe lock-in. The saddest <laughs> pigeon you've ever seen. Yeah. It was. Yeah, so it's just like, I mean, yeah, I, doors I love, I guess. Can we make all doors the revolving doors in the city, they're pretty fun. I was trying to think, I'm like, there's so many different types of doors out there. Indeed, well, but with the glass, I suppose there's an implication of transparency. It would be nice if there was a transparency about how we should operate them as well. Yeah, there's yeah endless designs. There's a, a, a door at basketball. It's like two doors open into the middle, I guess. So there's two panels yes. of wood and there's kind of a, a, a bigger one and you're not sure whether you push them or pull them either and you're going in in your uniform and you're getting ready to play basketball. I'm with you though. Life is challenging enough. And then you're like, I don't want to stumble in through the door. I don't want that to be my first impression <laughs> on the court to my opponents. Yeah. I feel like they could just make you really vulnerable and we should be kind of sorting this out. I was pushing through a locked revolving door <laughs> only a few mornings ago uh, and I had a card and I beeped it there were two doors beside each other, a revolving door and another door, and I took a gamble. I assumed the beep would be for the revolving, and there I was, pushing, pushing, and I looked in, and then everyone's in the cafe looking back at me. It was just This is the twilight zone. must have been the same cafe. Come on, people. Where? It should be clearer. Triple R. With his eye on insects from Museums Victoria, we're joined for Feature Creatures this week by Bugman and renowned card shark Simon Hinckley. Morning, Simon. <laughs> Morning, everybody. Uh, now, what, we're talking thieving. We are talking thieving. And uh, I saw a really interesting article looking at plants taking advantage of kleptoparasites, which made me think about kleptoparasites. So people will probably know the phrase kleptomaniac, uh, mm-hmm. kleptomania. So I think klepto comes from, I think there's a Greek root there, and it means basically thieve or steal. If you're a kleptomaniac, you are driven to... Thieve or steal. Um, a kleptoparasite is uh, 
an animal that will steal food or resources from another animal. So it can be within a species. So to step outside of the insect world for a second, we might have all seen those documentaries with the chinstrap penguins, who are really cute penguins in the Southern Ocean. Um, they nest on islands where there's no trees. So obviously you're on the ground. No trees equals you make a nest of rocks, which is, is pretty tough. But there's a lot of thieving that goes on between individuals of the same species for other people's rock, other birds rocks so that's within a species you can get um, between species so again just looking at something you might have seen on nature docos um, birds returning home seabirds returning back to feed their chicks they've been feeding all day and the skewers and the frigate birds wait for them to arrive back to the island and start harassing them grabbing their tails dive bombing them until they literally regurgitate their food so no food for the chicks but easy food for the skewers and um, the frigate birds so it's well documented in birds but um, unsurprisingly, it happens a lot in the invertebrate world as well. Um, one of the good examples are cuckoo bees. So they're very, very beautiful bees. Cuckoo bees are uh, generally black with a really beautiful uh, blue coloration. Some of them are black with white coloration. And as the name implies, um, we probably all know about cuckoos, as in the birds. Uh, and what they do is it's quite, well, it gets brutal to us. The, the cuckoos will obviously lay their egg in the nest of another species and when that egg hatches the uh, juvenile cuckoo amazingly knows that it needs to eliminate the competition so there's footage of you know these little bald birds without feathers and eyes still closed and they basically get under the other eggs or the other chicks in the nest and basically flip them out of the nest onto the ground below wow so if you're an egg you'll break or freeze if you're a chick you'll starve or freeze so fairly brutal but um the cuckoo gets to reproduce so cuckoo bees a little bit similar they will often look for blue banded bees which i think i've talked about on here on the past um, people in melbourne may well have seen them very beautiful bees with blue bands on the abdomen and they provision their cells with pollen so they will uh, put the pollen in there lay an egg and disappear the cuckoo bee if it can will zoom in lay its egg and also disappear the cuckoo bee egg always hatches first so the cuckoo bee larvae um, eats the pollen progresses through development as the blue banded bee egg hatches there's either no pollen left or not enough so it dies so same scenarios with the cuckoos so really interesting strategies of basically trying to to thieve and it can as i said can be resources it can also be food um one of the other ones is there's a really lovely little group of spiders called dewdrop spiders they're very, very small, just a couple of millimetres, and they have a, an abdomen that's quite silvery, so it looks like a, a, a drop of dew with sort of light coming through it. And what they do is hang out on the edges of the golden orb weaver spider webs, which are much bigger spiders, which I also think I've spoken about them in the past, but um, big spiders through Melbourne, um, and the webs, if you look at them in the right light, have a really beautiful gold coloration. So these little spiders hang out on the edges, and as the golden orb weaver catches food um, and has multiple sort of wrapped up bundles in the web, they'll sort of come in and start to, to feed on that. So lots of sort of thieving going on. Interestingly, one of the groups that doesn't seem to have much kleptoparasitism is the frogs. And I was sort of thinking about why that would be. Um, anyone, no one has to answer, but does anyone have a like straight away, why wouldn't frogs suffer kleptoparasitism? Because they're always on the move? That's actually, that's good. Um, obviously, if you want to, if you are a kleptoparasite, you need a host that you can find and that stays still long enough. That's a really good answer because obviously spiders are sitting in their webs. They're, they're a good target. The other reason is that um, when frogs and toads catch food, it's straight in one go, straight into the stomach. If you're <laughs> yeah. a spider, the food is wrapped in the web. If you're a messy eater, there's bits on your jaws, there's bits sort of falling on the ground, but the frog straight in down. But I like the movement thing. Um, 
So, yeah, and one of the other ones leading back to these plants is a, a little family of flies called uh, Mylochiidae, and they're very, very small, a couple of millimetres, and what they are attracted to is basically a combination of insect blood, or what we call haemolymph, and also a pheromone that things like bees give off when they're caught and distressed. So the bees will give off uh, an alarm pheromone if they're grabbed and they're in the process of being caught, um, killed. And these flies arrive within seconds of that happening. So they're obviously designed to pick up that, that sort of pheromone and they'll come in and as the haemolymph is leaking, they'll it, there's pictures of like a spider will have a, a honeybee and there'll be lots of these little flies all over the bee just basically trying to steal the haemolymph before the spider, praying mantid, whatever it is, can, can get its go. Um, so interestingly, these very clever, well, in inverted commas, if you can call plants clever, but I think they are, um, it's a genus of plants that occur right around the world, but these ones that I saw are in South Africa. And what they do is they mimic, they release a smell that smells like a distressed bee pheromone. So you feel this little fly flying around you suddenly go, oh my God, there's this amazing huge bee that's gushing haemolymph and they'll sort of all zoom in. For one of the plants, they end up sort of falling inside, a bit like a pitcher plant, but you want the fly to be able to get out again. So it falls in, it sort of stumbles around, picks up pollen, gets out and goes off and falls for another plant emitting the smell and falls into its trap sort of thing. So that's how it spreads the pollen. Um, so there's no reward there for the fly. So it's a really nice example of a kleptoparasitite being taken advantage of by a plant. So it's a bit like, you know, what goes around comes around. It's like nature's catfishing or something. <laughs> it, it is, it is. Luring them in. Yeah. And there's another one that um, it also releases the smell of, uh, of, of hemolymph for a distressed bee, but it doesn't have a trap. What it does is it does provide like a, a sugary secretion. So there is some reward for the fly in this case, but we don't know whether the protein in that secretion is as good as haemolymph so it might still be being taken advantage of oh and i should have said if anyone's thinking about a kleptoparasite i mean the most obvious example is anyone who's ever had a chip stolen by a seagull you know, like you can <laughs> anywhere and the seagull the pigeon whatever it is swoops in they are your classic kleptoparasite so in commerce i suppose they might call it shrinkage or when you factor in theft or breaking stuff or fraud or whatever do you get the impression that nature over provides to factor in the natural theft it seems to be there's there's lots of equations in kleptoparasitism where obviously you you save energy in not going out and getting your own food but you've still got to expend energy in not getting eaten or in sort of whatever method you have and it does appear that for example if if it's a really good year if there's resources everywhere maybe kleptoparasitism isn't so rife if when times are tough that's when like say for example um you know, there's a, there's a rock slide on, on the Chinstrap Island and there's rocks everywhere. Maybe there's not the need to steal as many rocks as normal. But when resources are tough, that seems to be that when kleptoparasitism really sort of ramps up. And, I mean, I guess also I was thinking about um, the, the biggest kleptoparasite, and I guess it would have to be us. I mean, obviously, in terms of taking resources from... From well, we, we also well we, we do take from each other, um, whether or not it's pinching a biscuit from the biscuit tin at work or whatever your your case may be. But they're communal, you... Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I am the public services. Actually, no, no, we do get ten coffee provided, but we don't get biscuits. Oh, they are taken from staff members. Um, but um, yeah, so we obviously do take from other. Um, we take resources, but of course, the classic example is the honeybee. We take from them, and we don't really give anything back. So we are a classic and enormous kleptoparasite. Yeah. Uh, what about reflexes? How do you think about reflexes very much and how quickly 
insects move in order to thieve effectively? You, I guess there's a number of strategies. So, for example, those dewdrop spiders that are stealing from the golden orb webers, they're very, very small. So you can have a number of different strategies, uh, I guess, if you are... If you are a large spider, a golden orb weaver, it's probably them, them worth trying to take you down. You're, you're actually a meal. You're on their web. You're, you're a real threat. If you're this tiny little thing that's hanging out on the edges, is it worth your effort to chase you? Is it worth eating you like you're two millimetres large? So there's a number of strategies you can take to um, make yourself less of a, of a threat by being small, by taking small amounts, by feeding on prey when you're not noticed. So, yes, yeah, certainly I guess it's that fine line. Um, and it, it also, I guess, the, the presence of kleptoparasites might also be influencing the host to develop greater defences. So maybe the golden orb weaver wraps its prey even tighter, has, has more wrapping around it so you can't get in. Um, it does develop sort of the responses, maybe slightly bigger eyes to go, oh, actually, now I can see you, now I will take you. So it's, again, that, that constant thing of the host and the parasite constantly sort of developing strategies to defeat the other. Mm, so there are like professional kleptoparasites and then when insects face like a cosy live crisis, some people come <laughs> into the sphere. I would imagine so, yeah. yes. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, all right, well, there's there's endless discussion for this. Where, where do you think it's it's heading uh, in the, the research into kleptoparasites? It's interesting because when I was sort of looking at it, I thought, the only resources I've ever seen sort of like growing up were those documentaries very much based on birds. I guess they're a large, obvious, you know, you can see birds chasing other birds and making them regurgitate their food. It's, you go, oh, that's interesting behaviour. When you're talking two-millimetre spiders hanging out on the edges of other spider webs, it's, it's a lot um, less easily observed. But it's interesting because um, in, turn, in, in terms of finding things like those pollination stories, it, it might sound like really annoying. I mean, if you go out and someone comes, some, you come home with dinner and someone chases you around until you drop your dinner, that's really <laughs> annoying if we anthropomorphise it. But in terms of um, plant species, there's probably a lot of um, falling insects, including kleptoparasites, into pollinating them. So there's a lot probably of research to be done there. And also um, looking at things like uh, invertebrate behaviour and, and sort of the, the ways that things are developing and adapting to these sorts of changes is, is a really interesting area. One that it's too small for me to be, you know, looking, I can't spend time looking at tiny spiders, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, someone needs to do exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. You're flat out playing cards. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for the term sugary secretion as well. I think they're playing Old Bar at this Wednesday. <laughs> my uh, pleasure, my pleasure. And I guess Simon Winkler is a kleptoparasite because he comes in and steals people's hearts. Oh, no, don't say that. <laughs> He's looking slightly uncomfortable yeah, because yeah. Um, I sort of—I didn't promise I wouldn't say anything, but, but it is Simon's uh, last week, and uh, it's been a pleasure talking with Simon. And um, well done, Simon, on your work. And you'll be going back to your usual shift, but thank you. Oh, thank you very much. It's been such a great pleasure, and yet yeah, extremely excited. Mom will be back, and can't wait to keep listening to her incredible insights every um, every fortnight. So Thanks. thank you so much. She's back, man. Thanks. Independent Melbourne Radio Three Triple R. Anthony Hamilton is the artistic director and co-CEO of Chunky Move, Melbourne's most prominent contemporary dance company, having helmed award-winning creations including Black Project, Meeting, NYX for Melbourne Festival, Chunky Move's Token Armies, Rewards for the Tribe as part of Rising and international commissions, including for the Lyon Opera Ballet and Sweden's Skonnes Dance Theatre. Now, the artistic director is bringing to audiences the highly anticipated new work 4-4, conceptualised, directed and choreographed by Anthony himself and to tell us about it, the acclaimed dancer and former urban adventurer joins us now. Anthony, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. Now, uh, this show, can, can you compare it to, say, in contrast to former shows that have I read have used horses and dogs and eagles and puppets? <laughs> yeah, 
Look, the reality is I find it very difficult to repeat myself uh, or to make a carbon copy of the last thing I did because every artistic creation uh, that, I, that I produce in collaboration with the people that I work with tends to roll out in a very unique and interesting way and it's always a process of discovery of, in, of new forms, new languages that emerge from the conversations that we have in the studio and I was, I was going to say as well, I mean, the, the one way I've talked about this work is it's a very technical explore, exploration of choreography, which, you know, is a foundation of a choreographer's passion, really. You know, the, working into the, the highly technical, you know, the rigour of the actual the choreography and really stretching the dancers' abilities and looking at the prowess that they can, you know, get from, from the, the technical realisation of, of their, their, their knowledge as dancers. But the thing is no matter how technical you try and make something, it's really, it involves human beings. So it ends up being a very emotional expression. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's funny, I've been likening it to, um, you know, with the Women's World Cup on at the moment, you know, it is very much like working with a team of sports people and like elite athletes. Um, you know, rehearsals are like, you know, you have your on days and your off days. And, you know, you're trying to make this thing that's really all about, you know, the mastery of this form. But it's always got this layer of humanity in it, which is all about watching people work through something, you know. And that's the thing that's so sort of, you know, amazing to watch mm. in a show like this. And it, as you say, it is fascinating the ways in which an intention can evolve. And as you mentioned, something which is so highly technical ends up having a deeply human, dramatic um, element to it. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe what emerged and what surprised you as the work developed? Yeah, well, I suppose if I talk about like in relation also to previous works, one of the foundations of my work is this deep integration of forms. So choreography is really just one part of an expression, you know, that involves a real deep attention to the space and attention to the architecture, to the materiality of things and the, and the, and the, the world that we live in and the fact that we're surrounded by sort of, you know, built environment and architecture and um, and so this integration of forms is often at the centre of choreography. It's often about how, you know, dancers manipulate and move with material objects, um, which has its own kind of like nerdy, nuanced kind of, you know, thing about it that, again, like choreographers will be deeply interested in. Um, but with this work, you know, one thing I really wanted to do was strip away a lot of that and get really, really back to the body and back to the ritual of dancing, that, you know, that, that deep connection that we have to rhythm and to movement and really push the dancers in that direction um again it's sort of like you know from my point of view it's it's really a pleasure to dive deep into that and to sort of you know get rid of a lot of that sort of extraneous material and just just focus on the you know the the abilities of these incredible performers um you know i guess something that probably emerged with this process um came from the individuals that i'm working with so the dancers in this show hail from very different creative backgrounds we have dancers who their foundation is freestyle hip-hop or house or crump you know and then we have other dancers in the show who do come from a more, you know, the more traditional contemporary dance field and the modern dance lineages, you know, of Europe and North America. And that kind of, um, you know, connection to different forms really drove a very different practice in the studio. Uh, my history as well is very kind of mixed in terms of the, the training that I had. I had street training. I was a b-boy and breaker. Um, through the 90s and early 2000s and most but I had a whole lot of formal training in classical ballet and all of the modern dance techniques Martha Graham technique Cunningham technique and all these you know um, the known sort of you know foundation techniques um, you know for contemporary dance so 
um, you know, it's been great to sort of dive back into this world as well, where you have, you know, a different sort of process of working together on the floor. Absolutely. And 4-4 becomes the meeting point of all of those different traditions with that sort of metronomic rhythm that you're talking about as well. Yeah, that, yeah, that brings me to the music, I guess. So I'm working with um, a longtime collaborator, Alastair McIndoe, on the music. And a little bit like the choreography, we went, you know what, we've got to strip this out. We don't want any kind of like, you know, um, you know, Nothing to nothing to hold on to. It's like it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore and intense because it's so minimal um, with the music. So we worked with the idea of uh, the, a metronome as a foundation for the entire uh, for the entire um, uh, sound design. So it really and the metronome, of course, is you know the, the timekeeper for for all for many many forms of music. Um, um, across many different cultures as well. So there's timekeepers in, you know, Indonesian um, gamelan music, there's timekeeper in, in, you know, Western orchestral music as well. So, you know, it's really interesting to use that as this, like, you know, it's like the heartbeat of the piece, really, you know. Um, it really focuses the audience as well because it's just like the clocking of a, you know, the ticking of a clock, you know. It's just like it's incessant, it's there. But what we do is we have a lot of fun deviating off the time signature of just a square beat and doing a whole lot of polyrhythms and crazy rhythms and stuff that the dancers have to count. And the dancers have a hell of a time trying to, like, count it. And you see this, the, the stress and the tension in their face. And, and so in that sense, it is, really is about, like, not necessarily just watching people, you know, doing the thing that they're really good at. It's also about the struggle and the effort and the sort of, you know, the demand that's placed on them. And it's really kind of intense to watch them sort of go through it you know mm. it's cathartic for them you know and what about the idea of dance because you describe it and it sounds almost well it's beautiful in the stress that we're all under and the the art that's created from it but it is and you've spoken of this ephemeral i can't imagine what talking about dancing on the radio must be like that's <laughs> ephemeral meta uh, tenfold uh is it how do you all get on the same page psychologically do you start a rehearsal in the same way? Is there consistency to the method? Everyone's got their own lives. How do you bring everyone psychologically into the same spot? That's an awesome question because really you're right. You know, we have such a focus on, on language and, and, you know, speaking and, and writing things down as a, as a method of communication. You know, with, when you're starting with your body and when the foundation of your, your, your worldview is through the form of dance, you approach space and interaction with people in a very, very different way. Um, you know, it does, it does give you a different sort of perspective and a different frame to, to view things through. There are times where we'll be in the studio and we'll set ourselves an agenda and say, okay, today we went... We, we're not going to speak at all. We're just going to like work with the body. And what it does, I guess, is a kind of meditation that, that, that you know, emerges where your, you know, your attention to your surroundings, the distance between you and other people, you become hyper aware of it, so much more hyper aware. And um, so there's a whole lot of learning that really, you know, comes from the process of making dance as well. And you can shed a lot of, um, you know, the everyday kind of things that you do and use to, to sort of make meaning out of your life. And mm. um, so, yeah, it's a very rich experience in the studio. Um, but at the same time, you know, in, in the sort of leadership role and driving the room and, you know, being the director of, of the show, um, it's really about holding people as well and making sure that everyone feels, you know, secure and that they can be confident and, then, and they can try things and express things in a safe way, you know. Um, 
and and feel vulnerable and okay with that because actually you know being a performer is a very vulnerable position to be in you know you've got this dynamic between the stage and the audience and nothing in between and it's a lot of responsibility for a performer you know and it's a responsibility for the audience too but hey that's it and in terms of the extraordinary perform performances i understand that each of the eight dancers remains on stage for the entirety of the performance. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting how, you know, works kind of just emerge. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, you, as a maker, you're very particular about the the way you want to organise a situation in a, in a stage, you know, on stage. And other times you just forget certain things and you just let things roll on and you just get very fixated on, uh, on detail and sort of obsessive about the choreographic process. And it's just, let's, okay, now, now you're going to do this and now you're going to do this whole arm thing and, and gather together and, uh, and run over there. And, then, and so you just get obsessed with detail. And sometimes it, you get so obsessed with detail and you let it run on for so long you don't step back and go, ooh, you, you didn't get a break yet, you know. <laughs> and, um, and that actually is interesting because that becomes the dramaturgy of the work. Well, exactly right? right. Underscores, as you say, that endurance, the struggle and the triumph of what is being accomplished. Yeah, yeah. It, and it is an endurance run for the, for the dancers. Um, if you haven't been to a contemporary dance show before, I would say chunky move shows are the way in because we make works that are really accessible but they're also you know really rigorous artistically um and uh i think that you know getting that sense of like watching watching dancers in this in this space of like endurance is you know if, you, if you're new to dance you, you you'll you'll be coming back you know because it's and if you, I, I, was, I keep saying this if you love sport come and see this because these guys are like elite absolutely you know yeah yeah, and I mean, it sounds incredible and I cannot wait to see it, but continuing, I guess, with the parallels with the Women's World Cup, how are all the dancers going, preparation in the lead up to it, everyone in good health, everyone's calf's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's an awesome question as well because it's true, you know, you've got to manage injuries, yep. you've got to manage people's energy levels. Um, you know, it's a fine-tuned machine, mm. the, the work and the way that the, the dancers, you know, work together and support each other through yep. it. Um, so far, so good. Great. You know, and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're well-versed, you know, at working in, in a space in which we're, you know, managing uh, people's okay. bodies and, and, and mental state as well, you know. Absolutely. Well, not to dwell on injury, but I can't stop thinking about one of yours. Uh, on a marble floor. Oh. How, uh, you're laughing, which is such a relief. How, uh, how do you think about the, the body and its vulnerability? Are you talking about when I did like a back somersault on a concrete floor yeah. in New York and I was breaking? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, that was a long time ago. I don't know where you pulled that from. That's amazing that you got that info. Um, but, yeah, so for me managing injuries, i got to say I was a little bit more uh, loose about it um, coming up, uh, I didn't. I never really looked after myself all that well, um, and oftentimes I've, you know, I've had injuries that I just then just accept as a new condition of my body that I just work with. Um, but I mean, thankfully, you know, some people have like a lot of problems with their knees. Like dancers have problems with their knees a lot, but might have been pretty robust. You know, I'm 44 and I'm still getting down, so <laughs> nice, it's all nice. good. Yeah. Uh, can I ask just finally, why? how do you settle on the number of shows and the, the stretch of the, the run? There's a lot of factors that play into that. Uh, you know, if it's in a festival context, which it's not, so we are outside of festivals, we're between festivals, which is actually a nice sweet spot to be in because, you know, 
uh, not a whole lot of competition right now, which is good. Um, but, uh, you know, it really sort of depends on, on a bunch of factors like that, like, you know, um, where our audience is at. And we're sort of track, we track that all the time. We look yeah. at what else is going on in the kind of, you know, in scene and... Um, yeah. Well, catch yeah. this while you can, because Chunky Moves' new show, 4-4, premieres Tuesday, August 8, until August 12. Yes. And uh, it's from the mind of the artistic director of Chunky Move, Anthony Hamilton. Head to chunkymove.com, perhaps, for more information. Yeah. Anthony, great pleasure to have you in. Thanks so much. Woo! <sighs> That's right. Triple R. That's the Friday Funny Bugger music. And, uh, it's a good day because Jonathan Schuster is with us. Morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Hi. How are we? Are we well? Yeah, definitely. Great. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you're doing well too. Yeah, you too. Congrats on your last day. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Great music taste oh, always. Thanks, Jonathan. And your voice is a... <laughs> very soothness to it, which yeah. I like. Oh, yeah. Thank you. But yeah, yeah, very much looking forward. Today we are celebrating the imminent return of Monique as well next week. Yeah. On Monday. Can't wait. Never played Computron. What do you mean? Is that your name? Is that yeah. your, that was your band's name? Yeah, yeah. Simon totally snubbed Computron. Oh. oh, every time I'm on here, I play it. Like, I'm just, yeah, it doesn't need to be on here anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's embarrassing. Yeah. Um, I just want to talk about onion relish. Cool. Anyone ever made it? No. I, I, I'm very excited to hear you discuss the subject. It's the though. worst thing. I don't know if anyone... Ah, oh, if you're out there and you make onion relish, Well, congrats. do you like onion and do you like relish? Ordinarily? I think it's fine. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's nice on sandwiches occasionally, but... Um, it can really elevate a meal, for sure. Yeah. Caramel notes. To yeah, dish. definitely. Sweetness. Um, and I had a, a big bag of brown onions in the pantry and I noticed I had cooked <laughs> eggs perfectly the last two times yeah and i thought i'm ready to move on i'm ready to ready to try something new i'm a foodie now love this can i ask how did you cook the eggs perfectly what was i'm a fryer yeah great um and then sometimes you flip them over and it's perfect and it was great so when did you have the epiphany that you were a foodie? Was it when the egg on the second side? Or what? On the on the second time I cooked them, they were perfect. They were like a little bit cooked. They were mostly cooked and then it's like super like drippy on the inside. And you thought, it, I've arrived. I've arrived. I can I see like, the dreaminess in your eyes as you, re- as you recall that moment. Yeah, it was great. Um, so I thought, all right, I've got this onion. I'm going to do something with it. I should have gone with like a like an onion um, tart, but mm. I decided relish should be nice to maybe have it. And then if it's enough, I can give it away. Like it's a nice gesture. The gift mm. keeps on giving. So then I had all the ingredients. I googled onion relish. I had balsamic vinegar, brown onion, brown sugar. Um, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, and then it said sterilized jars, which I didn't have. And I just at the time I realised I know nothing about anything, and I was like sterilized jars. That's just that's just clean jars. This so is I, explaining the food poisoning going around the west. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, no. And then I was like, all right, I'll just get some brand new jars from the shops, and there was like eight jars for like six bucks mm-hmm. so like making money <laughs> and then and then i went and bought them 
I came back and I was uh, about to start cooking and then some of the onions were like slimy as hell. So I was like, all right, now I need to go and buy some more brown onions. So I went and did that and that was the first step of me <laughs> almost having a nervous breakdown. Okay. Got these onions, brought them back, then realised that sterilised just isn't clean. You've got to sterilise them. Ah. Have you ever sterilised Is it boiling anything? water? I mean, what, what, t- tell us the there's process. A, there's a lot of processes and <laughs> one of them Multiple is boiling. Processes. One of them boiling. I was like, all right, how do you sterilise it? And one was boiling. So I was like, how do you boil it? And then <laughs> I looked it up on the internet and said, to sterilise, <laughs> boil 10 minutes at altitudes of less than 1,000 feet. <laughs> At higher elevations, boil one additional minute for each thousand feet elevation. Is that actually? Did you make that up? <laughs> no, no, no. That's what happened when it came up. I would look down. I was like, "All right, well, that's annoying." And then I was like, "You have to know how high you are above sea level." Exactly. And I was like, "That's annoying." I was like, "What is sterilization? What's the point of it?" And then I was like, "All right, well, I looked up. I was like, what happens if you don't sterilize jars?" And then it came up with, are you familiar with botulism? Yes, I am. So botulism, I was like, what's botulism? And then I looked it up and it said, you cannot see, smell or taste the toxin, but taking even a small amount can be deadly. Mm. So I was like, all right. So then I Googled elevation of Melbourne (laughs) and we're at 31 metres, which is way... Well under the threshold. I don't know what the feet... Of that is, but I was like, that's not a thousand feet. And then I was like, what's the highest point of Australia? And then uh, Kosciuszko, if you're boiling your jars <laughs> in the peak of Mount Kosciuszko, you would have to boil it for 16 minutes. Okay. So it's crazy that they 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 do that. Anyway. <laughs> um, so then I... It's a really high stakes, high octane life of a foodie, isn't it? I yeah. know. It's crazy. And then, dedication I was like, and I was like, admirable. well, that's so annoying. And I was like, all right. But then I found out another way to sterilise. You put the jars in the oven. The oven is my favourite method. And then the lids in a boiling water. Exactly. And then I did that. And then I wasn't even up to the onions. I, I cooked a kilo of onions. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever chopped an onion before. Yeah. Worst part of the meal. <laughs> I had to cut up like heaps anyway started crying uh very reflective time um was it the tears from the onions was it the recent breakup was it the donut and it was genuinely was it the, the sterilization worst time. Debacle? um really quick and it was like why is it called relish you know, that's a good thing. Right. Um, you think they've smuggled in with the word uh, some self-praise? Absolutely. Because <laughs> it's not that good. <laughs> and it's like $3 a jar everywhere else. And it's like, it's not even... Anyway, so I, I made it and I popped in the, the pantry and... Um, I love how much detail we got with the sterilisation and then you're like, so I made it. It's in the pantry. Tell us more. Yep. Go in. How was cooking the onions? It was it was um, fine. Yeah. Have you cooked onions before? Yeah, I like it the is smell. Good. Yeah, I do like it's and incredible. The, the brown onion was uh, the brown onion with the brown sugar. Like mm. it's all nice. Mm. And then sautéing this for a long time, so it's a bit of a meditative process y- as well. Yeah, so that was good. I didn't mind that. Mm. Um, and I just 
early on I just thought that I would pop it in a Tupperware container and it would be done and I would enjoy myself. Mm. But um, then I just had to put it in jars and it says like store six months, which I don't know if that's if it stores for six months or if I can eat it up until six months. Mm. So then it's now just I, – I, I hate it <laughs> so much. It's just in my pantry now. Mm. And in six-month time, I feel like my sandwiches will be mildly better. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll have botulism. I don't know. But it was so annoying and I'm never doing it again. And uh, if you love relish um, and want a jar – Hit me up, I've got free. <laughs> right. And it's imbued with the deep existentialism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, where do we catch you? Where, how do, if we do want the jars, is there a gig or is there a... Um, it, hit me up on Instagram. Instagram? Where are, what are you, Jonathan Schuster? Tell Jonathan Schuster. Right. I hate people with handles because yeah. it's like so hard. They, there's everyone's different names. It's annoying. Yeah. So keep it straightforward. Keep it yeah. simple. Yeah. All right. Well, Jonathan, good luck with your next dish. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.